Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. It's an iconic scene in both movies and popular imagination. The moment when the archaeologist cracks open the door of the ancient tomb to see what the crypt reveals. A once-in-a-lifetime experience? Not for state archaeologist Emeritus Nick Bellantoni. In his 30-plus years as the state's official investigator of historical remains, Nick stepped into so many ancient tombs they could fill a book. And they have in this special two-episode interview about his new book, And So the Tomb Remained. Nick and I talk about his experiences doing restoration, recovery work, and criminal investigations in the tombs of some of Connecticut's oldest and most powerful families. What secrets about the past can an ancient tomb reveal? The answers, as Nick Bellantoni is about to tell us, are many, surprising, and incredibly interesting. And so the tomb remained just ahead on Grading the Nutmeg. We're lucky today to be with one of the state's most interesting people and one of the people I like most in the state, state archaeologist emeritus Nick Bellantoni. Nick has another wonderful new book, and I jumped at the chance to get on a Zoom call with him and talk to him about it. So, Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing well, considering all the pandemic and everything. We can't complain. So your new book is titled, And So the Tomb Remained. And it's from a Thomas Hardy, the English author poem. The poem's called The Obliterated Tomb. Tell us why that title. Well, you know, that wasn't my original title. I really wanted to go with uh, a title called uh, Houses of the Night was, was my original title. Uh, and that was from a, a poem during the American Revolution by Philip Freneau. However, I, I went with a, a publisher in England, and it turns out in England, houses of the night means houses of ill repute. <laughs> so I went back to the drawing board, and when I when I found Thomas Hardy's uh, obliterate tomb, a line in it, and said, and the tomb remained, and so the tomb remained, I thought that was the appropriate title, because Many of these were tombs that were already uh, falling apart, literally, uh, and well, had it to be restored. It's interesting. This book is about tombs and your interaction with them. And as you say right at the beginning, you've probably been in more obliterated tombs than any archaeologist. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It just happens to be in my tenure, there were a number of tombs that were were built in the 1790s and many times with unmortared stone and were starting to collapse by the late 20th century. Uh, and so they needed restoration. And uh, I was asked to go into a number of tombs to help with that process and identify uh, individuals buried there that were never recorded. Were you asked to do this because of the the way the General Assembly breaks up duties between the medical examiner and the state archaeologist? Was it was it built into the job description? Yeah, it, it wasn't really built into the job description when I uh, first came on board. But as legislation changed and I started to become involved with the medical examiner uh, for really for unmarked burials that were uncovered during construction and other processes. Before this legislation, uh, the, there was no process how to deal with historical remains. So once the police realized that 
skeletal remains that have been unearthed were not uh, part of a modern criminal investigation. What this provided, and especially working with the Native American community in Connecticut, it provided for the state archaeologist to be involved in a procedure for historical remains that would be, you know, not only forensically uh, identified, uh, but um, uh, appropriately reburied, and also uh, the histories of who these people were to try to do the, the genealogical work to find out what families were involved. And then a couple of the cases I, I write about were actually criminal investigations where it started where vandals had broken into tombs, uh, historic tombs. Yeah, I love the way you structured the book. It, it's almost like you you immerse us slowly into the idea of, okay, this is what it's like to go into you know, a tomb that's that's had some structural problems. And then you take us all the way through to by the end, like this is where the voodoo raiders came. And I, if we can, I want to walk through kind of that same walk with you in this podcast. You do this really nice capsule description of the way cemeteries have evolved over the centuries in America. And you locate you locate those tombs in that context. You think you could lay that out for the people listening? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, when, when the original Puritans came here in the 17th century, they really didn't come here with, um, you know, uh, a history or a, a tradition of tombstones. Back in Europe, the only people that got marked were, you know, nobility and, and very prominent people who usually were buried within churches. And clearly marked, but average people, you know, they just basically went unmarked. Um, so that um, what happened was people would be preparing for their deaths, would, would, would say to their family and friends, to bury them near a church. And the idea was to be buried at Sancto or near the saint. And the only, the saints' relics were kept in a church, and the saints were the only ones you knew were in heaven. So it was thought that if you were buried near the saint, the saint would help you get through the pearly gates type of Now, thing. that's that long, um, old European Catholic tradition, right? That's right. That is a, definitely a Catholic tradition. And, and so churchyards in Europe became boneyards because uh, people were constantly being buried there. So what ended up happening was that by the time of Shakespeare, um, there were so many burials and churchyards had literally become boneyards and that's how they're described. Um, there was a, an issue with the sanctity of the graves. So um, in pre preparation for the day of resurrection when Christ would come up with the sun and remove you from your housing, um, putting in new graves were disturbing other graves that had already been there. Um, and in the book I referred to Hamlet where, um, you know, he's digging Ophelia's grave and he comes upon a skull and it's poor Yorick, I knew him well, who was the court jester who had died a few months earlier, um, but no, but his grave was never marked. That phrase, and I think most people know, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. <laughs> the, the, I've always had one way of looking at that, but after reading your book and realizing how hard it is just from the skeletal features that you pick up from a cranium or something to, to recognize someone, I, I'm not so, so sure Hamlet really knew who he was looking at. <laughs> I agree, <laughs> but, it, but it's a thing that resonated with his audiences because of the fact that that's what they were familiar with. You would yeah. put a grave in a churchyard and you'd hit other bones. What, what ended up happening is that families now started to recognize this uh, desecration, if you will, um, and started placing a, a simple stone on the plot 
as if to say, look, somebody's already buried here. Dig elsewhere. And that and was that the eventually... origin of the gravestones, right? It, it... Just about, yeah. And then, uh, and then, of course, you get the iconographic uh, ones with the, the images, uh, the memento mori, and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, it, it's to kind of mark a grave. But earlier than that, it really wasn't done for common people. And, and in America, when in the 17th century, when people got here, it, it, in the first, the early years, the first generation or two, were stones common or were they doing this kind of old, just bury them in the ground thing? Just bury them in the ground. Whether they got wooden crosses or not, we don't know because those don't survive. But we have very few, uh, especially uh, early to mid 17th century tombstones or anything like that. So they didn't come over here with a tradition of that. We, we don't know where many of those people are, are, were buried. But as you uh, but eventually it would grow the later 1600s into the 1700s, then yes. stones marking graves become more common. More common and more, uh, and they may have put, we, we do have cemeteries from very early cemeteries where there's unengraved, unmarked uh, um, field stones, good old New England field stones that were thin that could be set as an appropriate burial marker that say somebody's buried here, but they may not have anybody's name or initials or anything. So then you start seeing initials and then you start seeing grave carvers actually come in and things get far more elaborate, uh, when, like you say, when, when you get into the late 17th century. And the logic behind this is that at the resurrection, when Christ comes back, everyone who's been buried is gonna rise up into their original bodies again. And the idea is they have to remain intact so that can happen. That's exactly, yeah, exactly. And of course that's all changed and been modified, uh, but yeah, that's right. And so if, if, you go to, if you go to an old cemetery in New England, in Connecticut, um, um, and if you read the headstones and the footstones and you see the pattern there, bring a, bring a compass if you need it. But if you'll notice the headstone is at the Western end of the burial and where it reads, here lies Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan's not in front of the stone. He's actually behind the stone with his feet moving away. So that in some cases you see a headstone engraved and then a, a merely a footstone with probably just the initials of the individual on it. So that they are laying head to the West, feet to the East. So on the day of resurrection, when Christ comes up, uh, with the sun, you're prepared to rise and join in that resurrection. Interestingly enough, there's a couple of cases um, where ministers were positioned with head to the east instead of the west. And so that was, so when they all rose, they would be facing their congregation oh, and be able to administer to them. Yeah. See? So, so, you know, uh, we had a couple of, we had more than a couple of, three or four um, cemetery vandalisms where they went into old graves, um, in some cases veterans, and I assume to collect memorabilia if they thought they were buried with uh, uniforms and, and swords and stuff. Um, and in one particular case, um, they had dug, uh, this was in uh, Ledger, Connecticut, uh, Sergeant Sperry, who was, a, he was a sergeant during the American Revolution, and um, that vandals had dug into his grave. And the police called, the state police called me out there. When, when I arrived, I, 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 it was a big six foot pit uh, trench in front of the tombstone. And I went in there and I did my work. And one of the detectives came to me and said, 
Nick, uh, did they, what did they take? Did they take anything? And I said, no, they dug on the wrong side of the tombstone. That's so wild. Barry's behind the tombstone, not in front of it. So they, they didn't understand uh, colonial mortuary practices. So let me make sure that I understand this, just so that when I go see my relatives who are in the <laughs> old yard down in the town center, that I'm paying respects you know, to the right side of the stone. <laughs> this, what you're saying is that the engraving on the stone, the body is not under the engraving side, but it's on the other side? It's on the back side. Head is the engraved side. Yeah, so the head is underneath the tombstone, is just adjacent to it, but the body is actually behind what you read. Okay. Um, now, this is 80, 90% of the time. There are sure. a number of exceptions, and, and especially as time goes on. But uh, yeah. Uh, See, I, I've always thought that when you looked at that stone, it's like a headboard and that the body yeah. is between you and the writing. But you're saying, no, no, it's on the other side. But back in the 7th, 18th, 19th, early 19th century, you're behind where you read and moving away. But just get out there with a compass, see east, west, see how they're aligned, and you can tell where the bodies are between the head and the footstone. We have stones, and then they evolve into individual gravestones. But when did we get these family tombs? When did they start happening? We start seeing them mostly around the time of the American Revolution, and they really extend even into the 21st century, where, where families have mausoleums, they're, they're still building. But the first ones I've been familiar with and see, and, and, and you could see in some of the old cemeteries, um, you know, were built about that time. Uh, and I guess, you know, the reason, though it's not really written very clearly, but I think the reason is that you know, not only can families be brought together for the day of resurrection, but also, you know, you, your, your, your bones, if you will, your remains would survive. Whereas in the ground with earth pressure and decomposition, you disappear, you know, decomposition, uh, you could be gone. In fact, with Connecticut's acidic soils, um, it's rare to find skeletal remains that are over 200 years old, even though we have. Um, so uh, without that earth pressure, or we think there might've been some symbolism of keeping everyone together, but also um, without earth pressure and better chances of being prepared for the, for that final day. So the logic is still to protect the physical shell for reanimation at the moment of resurrection. They're doing it in these what are essentially houses for the dead or or houses of the night if you're not in England, right? <laughs> so so exactly it, right. The first patented metal coffin occurs around 1825 and so. Uh, and one of the selling points of these metal coffins was that your body would preserve better in metal than in wood that would deteriorate so that you would preserve physically and most likely be there for the day of resurrection. So this so really does, re that. it remains an ongoing concern for Christians. Yes. And, and what happens, and yeah. This was, a, this was a marketing ploy to uh, go to a metal coffin sure. and you will preserve intact. Now, I would assume that building these tombs for families was a very expensive undertaking. And certainly these are the elite families who are having these multi-burial tombs built, correct? That's exactly right. They, these were all the upper socioeconomic class uh, that could afford 
to, to construct the tomb and, and maintain it and so forth. And then the other side, a spectrum, the other side of that are, are the poor that couldn't even afford a tombstone. You know, to, to have somebody engrave a tombstone, you know, took some money and yeah. uh, took some economic. So you got, you got people that could not afford a tombstone, thus were buried in unmarked graves uh, that we don't even know where they are. Um, uh, and the other end of the scale is these tombs, brick and mortar tombs, uh, stone tombs that the, the elite were, were able to build for their families. Now, the, the first one that you write about in the book is the Pitkin family in Manchester. Kind of locate them for us. Uh, who, who were the Pitkins? Well, the Pickens are, were probably, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the Kennedys of the uh, uh, 18th century. Um, uh, William Pickens was the first one to come over in the mid-1600s uh, uh, and um, only came here to, uh, kind of a, to, to voyage to the New World and check it out. His intent was to go back to England and become a, a, a lawyer, but he fell in love uh, with a woman by the name of Hannah Goodwin. And that changed all of his ideas. He stayed here and ended up uh, uh, never going back to England. But his, he bought land on the east side, across the river from Hartford, what was called the East Parish or the East Society, uh, very early and um, had hundreds of acres of land. And, and that's where the Pickens resided. They ended up being the prominent political family there. This and is in East Hartford? Or? This is today East Hartford, Manchester. Yeah. yeah. It extended into uh, Manchester. But um, and the Pickens were, I mean, my goodness, they were so prominent. Uh, um, they were military, military leaders of the local militias. They were They're governors, uh, too, right? I think one governors, of the well, William Pickin, uh, the governor, the, the third William, he actually uh, died in office and he is buried in Center Cemetery where the Pickin tomb is located in East Hartford, but he has his own separate grave and tombstone. His nephew is, is, is a man by the name of Squire Elijah Pickin, and it's Squire Elijah that builds the tomb probably in the 1790s on the north side of what would have been uh, Center Cemetery, actually just off the cemetery at that time. And he buried his family there for about three generations, if not more. How did you get called into this? What was the situation? In well, here in the Bicken case, what happened was the tomb was made of bricks and it was domed and the bricks were starting to fall apart. So the Friends of Center Cemetery, I think it was in 2002, raised funds to restore the tomb. But there were some issues with it. They didn't know whether it was the Pickin tomb because the outside facade had no writing on it. There was no Pickin name or nothing. It was just blank. And um, uh, many thought it was just a holding vault or a receiving vault. So people that died during the winter when you had snow and frozen earth and you couldn't dig with a hand shovel, couldn't dig those things. So they were held uh, until the spring and the bodies would be taken out and then put into the ground. So anyhow, when they were doing this, some bricks actually collapsed when they were starting the restoration project. So town workers went inside the tomb, expecting it to be empty to see what kind of damage had been done and whether it needed to be supported from the inside. And they see these skeletons and wooden coffins broken up uh, all over. That's when they called me. Uh, actually, Doris Sussman, the longtime municipal historian uh, in East Hartford, 
she contacted me at UConn about the graves that they did not expect to be in there. And could I come down and, and do a forensic analysis? And I said, sure. And then she said to me, and there's an Egyptian sarcophagus in here. Now I said, no, I, this is New England. There's not gonna be Egyptian. But when I got there and I entered the tomb, the sarcophagus turned out to be what's called a, a, a Fisk metallic coffin that was patented in 1849. And this was a coffin rather than being either, you know, hexagonal or rectangular was in the shape of a human body. So it, it contoured firmly. So it looked like an Egyptian sarcophagus. And this was uh, one of those metal coffins that people were saying, this will help you preserve your, your body more. Absolutely. And, and you needed to have money to, to be able to afford one of these things. It turned out that uh, there was a nameplate on the Fisk metallic cough case. And it said, Dr. Stephen Picken died 1851, and he was one of Elijah's sons. So we knew we were in the Pitkin. Did you not know till you saw that, that it had been a Pitkin tomb? Well, there was some talk about that. Uh, John Spaulding, uh, rest his soul, uh, who helped me as an archivist uh, with uh, Center Cemetery, they had a book, uh, the, the Pitkin genealogy, that said that everyone had been taken out of the whole tomb and reburied in the ground. So some thought it was a receiving holding vault, and some said, well, it might be the pick and tomb, but everybody had been removed, except when we went inside, we found out that that was wrong. They, it was not empty, and there were 16 bodies there. Was this the first tomb that you entered in your career? Was this the first time you'd done this? No, actually not. The first one I did, which is also in the book, uh, was uh, the Chauncey tomb in, in Indian Hill Cemetery. Yeah. I got called yeah. into that one in 1992, I believe. And, um, and Pick and I didn't do until 2000. So when you go inside, what you describe is just a mess. It just sounds like chaos inside that tomb. How big was the tomb when, when you got inside? They're pretty small, aren't they? In the some of them are small, but some of them are, are small, like eight feet by, uh, by maybe uh, 15 feet at the most. But the picking tomb was pretty good size. Um, it was almost like uh, 15 by 20. So it, was, it housed and it had, when you went down the stairs to the dirt floor, the stone steps, um, there were brick partitions going down the center aisle, and every two feet, brick partitions, seven high, were going to the side walls and the back wall. And what they did is they balanced coffins on the brick partition so they wouldn't be on the ground. So they're building, but, they're building like brick pedestals, right? That they exactly these coffins on, and they just going to exactly. line them along on these pedestals till they get to the back of the wall. They're lining them up and then they're stacking them. As they're running out of room, they start stacking coffins. So it becomes um, a storehouse where you're literally just stacking yeah. coffins on top of the other three, two or three rows along the wall. Wow. That's that's exactly right. So but you didn't this, see that neat organization when you walked in. <laughs> no, because you're talking, you know, 200 plus years. What had happened is those wooden coffins the sideboards desiccate, they dry out, and eventually through time it becomes that they pop and everything comes tumbling down. Yeah. So the floor and the partitions and the earthen floor were just a mess of, of skeletal remains, 
um, coffin remains, disarticulated now, uh, uh, commingled. Uh, uh, um, and interestingly enough, though, the ones on the bottom of uh, on the bricks themselves, they on their bottom board remained intact. But the ones above them were the ones that came tumbling down. So when the stacked ones, that kind of makes sense. But exactly. you said there were 16 skeletons in this thing. What did you do? How do you, you know, they're all disarticulated. They're scattered around. What, how did you take them on? What'd you do with them? Well, but the first thing to do is to map. Uh, we mapped the entire interior and then, you know, creating a kind of a model of, uh, of uh, how do you want to say, of falling apart, of uh, the disassembling, you know, where individuals would have been. So it's kind of like what we call a schlep effect. The higher you up, up on the stack, the more dispersed you're going to be than the ones closer. Sure. So I was able to map, um, you know, uh, you know, start putting people together again as best I could. Uh, and um, we had working with us Dr. Albert Harper, who was then the executive director of the Henry Lee Institute of Forensic Sciences at the University of New, uh, New Haven. He was with us. And what I would do is I would map and identify particular burials and spots and determine how they were stacked. I would send certain skeletal remains out to him where he and his the students studying forensics um, were starting to now record some information on, on, on each individual, males, females, ages, traumas, dental health, different things we, could, we can get. We were not allowed to remove the remains to a laboratory at the university. So everything had to be done on the field. And so it was not as detailed as we would like, but we had enough to actually start putting people uh, and matching those demographics, the, those uh, forensic demographics, with the family genealogy. And we were working with that. We were trying to now start knowing Elijah uh, uh, Picken, his family members, and then matching people and up the, as best we can. So there was a, a, a great amount of detailed genealogy before you ever began to sort through what was going on there. Absolutely. We knew, we knew that the Squire Elijah Picken um, um, built a tomb. So we really, you know, we, our, our archivists were working. They did a full genealogy. So we knew his sons, his daughters, his grandchildren, and we found evidences of at least three generations in the tomb itself. One of the things that fascinated me was how all of these skeletons that are laid out on this floor can collectively give you such an interesting image of the health of people in the late colonial, early American period. What were these people's lives like? You know, the interesting thing about it is that we, we now, in working on all of these tombs, had a, a body of data on health of these upper socioeconomic families. And comparing them to studies that have been done of burials that have been uncovered of lower economic means, farmers and so forth, we were looking for the differences uh, in health uh, at that time period. And you know what? We didn't find a, a great deal of difference. Uh, they suffered from the same diseases. They all worked hard hard physical labor so that they had uh, signs of osteoarthritic conditions all the way through. One of the things we did find, however, 
especially when we worked the Buckley tomb, was that these people were getting medical attention from doctors and even dentists where they could at least afford that kind of attention, but they were still suffering from the same kind of diseases, tuberculosis and so forth. That um, and the hard physical labor that we see on the on the bodies that that other classes were were also encountering. But overall, compared with today, their dental health was left a lot to be desired, right? Oh, I'll tell you, they uh, you know very few people owned a toothbrush. Uh, very few ever saw a, a professional called a dentist. They ate diets uh, that had a lot of sugars and carbohydrates. Their mouths are a mess. I've seen skeletons at the time of that time period, 20-year-olds, early 20s, already lost their teeth from periodontal disease. They're just falling out of their mouths. Dental health was atrocious. And uh, I always uh, used to tell my students that uh, if you needed an excuse to use dental floss, come to my lab. For me, anyway, there's not much that's worse than a toothache. And I... Just imagine a substantial amount of the population at all times were dealing with abscesses and pains and things. Must have been tough. No question. We see the decay, the caries, and they come, they show up in high frequencies. You know, sometimes it, it's less because they've already lost their teeth. There's no, no caries to, to observe. And, you know, a, a, an abscess, you mentioned, uh, back then, before antibiotics, you can get a tooth abscess and, and get infected, and you can, it can kill you. Yeah. Because the infection yeah. can go through your body. So, you know, before antibiotics, it was very difficult. Uh, but uh, dental health is, you know, by today's standards, atrocious. Well, and we'll revisit dental health health throughout the book because it's almost like there's a history of dentistry that's part of your study here. So you kind of put the Pitkin family back together and then you reunite them in the tomb and they close it up and it's restored. And I guess it's still there as a restored tomb now. Totally. And in your next chapter, you write about a tomb in Colchester, another elite family as big or bigger than the Pitkins, the Bulkleys. And the interesting thing to me about this one is this is a tomb that was itself buried, right? So how did that happen? The, the this, this yeah, this is a strange Halloween story. It, it, it occurred in nineteen. Now the tomb goes back, we think, to the seventeen nineties. But in nineteen thirty three, at for Halloween, a group of young boys in the town um, who are attending Bacon Academy. Uh, which is right next to the old uh, burying ground in Colchester, right off the green. They decided to break into the old tomb, the, the Buckley tomb, uh, get a skull, put it on a pole, and parade around town, you know, scaring the, the Dickens out of their, their fellow classmates. They created such a storm and ruckus that the town fathers came out, they investigated, they found out that the kids had broken into the tomb. In fact, the the, the kid carrying the pole with the with the with the skull on it was the the minister's uh, the son, and he was totally distraught. But, it's always uh, the minister's son. <laughs> <laughs> Just they saying. got a I'm, they got a good whipping. Let's put it that yeah. way. But but they were also the next day instructed by the the, the school and the town to close up the tomb. So what they did is they removed the old wooden door. The boys, they brought equipment in for the boys. The boys actually bricked up the opening. They just they dislodged footstones and small tombstones through the cemetery and stacked them in the stairwell that went down into the, the tomb. This is so no stacked one would ever up. vandalize it again, right? It's like, exactly. Sure this doesn't so happen. Nobody, 
they secured the tomb so nobody, and then to top it off, they brought in truckloads of dirt and buried the tomb so there would be no exposure of a tomb even be, being there. And so what ended up happening after three generations, the complete cultural knowledge that there was once a tomb there had been completely lost. Now there was this little knoll in, in the western edge of the cemetery where the slope was, but nobody really paid any attention to it. Then I think it was in 2002, which shortly, not too long after we had worked the Pickin tomb, they were cleaning up. The cemetery had gotten in disrepair. The grass was high. They were going to put in period fencing. They started to now clean things off. And when they did, they found a large metal, uh, uh, marble tablet broken in three pieces. And when they put them together, it said the tomb of Gershom Buckley and his descendants. And it was then realized that that little knoll there hit a tomb. And so that's when they knew they had rediscovered the Buckley tomb. And they did what everyone in Connecticut does in a moment like that. They said, call Nick. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, basically, they had heard that the folks in town had heard about uh, what we did at the Pick and Tomb um, and how we were able to identify specific ancestors. Now, in the restoration at Colchester, Peter Buckley was very much involved because many of the Buckleys are buried in, 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 in the cemetery. When he realized now that there was a tomb involved, they contacted me and I went down there and met with the family, met with the town. The, town, the cemetery is owned by the town of Colchester. And uh, I looked at this small little knoll and I said, you know, there's probably 10 people in here. I said, we could take care of it, we could do this. They have no records, no burial records. They have no idea who's in this tomb other than at Gershom Buckley. They wanted to know if we can go in and possibly identify some of the skeletal remains of their ancestors. What'd you find? It wasn't a little tomb. It turned out there were 30 bodies in there, and it was twice as many as was in the Pickin tomb. In this case, they were stacked four high. Same kind of construction, by the way, as Pickin. They had the brick partitions uh, along the side in the center aisle. The coffins were balanced on them. But in this case, there were 30 individuals buried in there. So and how, how big was this? Iron. Not very big, right? No, no, about the same size as the Pickin tomb. Maybe even a little smaller than the Pickin tomb. 15 by 15, something like that. Pretty much a square. I, I had no idea how big it was because the outer portion was very small, but it was really constructed larger under the ground. 30 individuals, and I was just flabbergasted because now I said, what did you get yourself into? Because now I had the logistics of how this was going to get organized. When you confront something like that, it's almost like a mass casualty site. You've yeah, got yeah, exactly. You, you have this wildly scattered cacophony of human parts, and you've got to try to put them together. What'd you do? So again, it, it really came down to mapping a lot of wood. There was a lot of wood from collapsed coffins. So we dealt with that wood and uh, tried to identify. In some cases, some individuals were still on their bottom board, which was really helpful. And in other cases, again, that schlep effect is higher it gets, the more they tumble out and to get dispersed. So just mapping, mapping, mapping. I developed little cards that I labeled each burial and started numbering them as I could identify them, working my way to the sides of the tomb and then back just trying to reconstruct in many cases where individuals would have been. And then what I started, I had to get them out. And so what we started to do was develop a, a process 
where I would work inside the tomb with at least one student, uh, sometimes two, helping me with the recording uh, and the documentation, and then removing individual bones, if you will, uh, onto plywood and bringing them out as, as much as I could in terms of individuals. We were pretty successful in doing that. And we set up, uh, again, a kind of a, 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 an outdoor laboratory where Dr. Harper helped us again, along with uh, Dr. H. Wayne Carver, who was then the chief state's medical examiner for the state of Connecticut. And we started to, they, they, while I was working inside the tomb, they were processing the skeletal remains. In this case, the, the Buckley family allowed us to bring the remains to the University of Connecticut, where we were able to do, spend more time with each of them and develop a far better uh, forensic work on them, um, identifications, I should say. It wasn't easy. I think it took us over three weeks or more to, to finally finish it because we had to go slow, but we also trying to keep people together, individuals together, trying to make sense of it. And once again, you have this encyclopedia of new knowledge about health of people over time. What was the chronological range of people buried in here? Was it a long period? Was it fairly compressed? No, fairly compressed when you when you think about it. We think it was built in the 1790s, though it might have gone a little earlier than that. But the last burial in this particular tomb was like 1830s. So, you know, it's a, it's a tight window. And there were at least three generations buried in, in the tomb. But like the Pickens, we also had a very detailed Buckley genealogy. And that is so helpful to us. Uh, not only did we have all of the descendants and families of Gershom Buckley, and they had big families. One of the things we found in the tomb, which we didn't find much of in uh, the Pickin tomb, was we found coffin lids that were still intact. And on the lids of the coffin, they had taken brass tacks and they hammered the initials of the person laying there, usually the initials and the age of death. And these were pretty elaborate because they were in heart motifs surrounding them. Uh, you, I mean, it was... One of the wonderful things about your book are the color images that, that you have in them. They show features in ways that you just can't get in black and white. I think yeah. people will love your book because of this. You have some of these initialed and patterned coffin lids, and they're quite striking. They're really, they're lovely in their own way, aren't they? They really are. They're really artistic. You know, again, a very prominent family that can afford this kind of burial. Um, interestingly enough, in terms of the prosperity, the earliest burials that we could we found in terms of the genealogy and so forth, the coffins were of very nice hardwoods, cherry, mahogany, maple. In the 19th century now, they're all pine. So yeah. it's kind of a shift. And I don't know whether it had to do with the prosperity of the family or 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 what, but the earliest coffins in the Buckley tomb were the most expensive coffins. How was the health of the Buckley family compared to the Pitkins? What'd you find? The Buckleys, uh, though they were prominent uh, and educated, they were basically farmers. We found the evidences of trauma, broken limbs, especially among the men. So that's kind of interesting. When you look at the demographics, we found all the broken limbs and, 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 and bones we found were of all men. No broken bones among any of the women. Severe cases of, of arthritic condition. So much so that in the backbones of the men, um, we found three cases where the bones were actually fused together. There was so much arthritic lipping going on. Wow. Which means they were 
kind of like, I don't want to say Cornish hens, but they could not move or flex their, uh, their backs because the bones were actually fused together. We found uh, evidences of uh, dental doctoring, if you will. The, uh, Was it this tomb where you found the prosthetics? They were beautifully made false teeth. Beautiful is right. They're, they're, they were uh, uh, false teeth made of gold plating where the palate would be, and then porcelain where the incisor was, where the white incisor would have been. And this was found on the burial of Aphroditus Buckley, who was died at 25 years of age. So he was a young man and probably had lost his teeth or some teeth and wanted to fill in the gap, so to speak, with the partials. But we do know that he served uh, in the War of 1812. He, we don't know if he died during the war. We have no records of him at all other than uh, that he served in the war from the Buckley family and would be buried in, I believe it's his uncle's tomb. Well, I would love to show those pieces to a dentist because that work looked yeah. really professional. So we have shown them to, to dentists and, uh, and to others uh, that to dental uh, history. And, and, and they were just blown away by it because they had known of, you know, there was uh, evidences of, of, of uh, rubber, volcan uh, uh, vulcanized teeth, uh, false teeth. But these were gold-plated, and these were really uh, quite, uh, quite expensive. Probably uh, Ephroditus would have had to go either to Boston or New York, I think, to have something like this worked on. Uh, certainly, I don't think he would have been able to get that done anywhere locally in, in Connecticut. But um, anyhow, yeah, uh, the history of medicine, these are very, very uh, important. Because not only do we have them, but we could date them. What a treasure trove of information. I'm state historian Walt Woodward, and I'm talking with state archaeologist emeritus Nick Bellantoni about his new book, And So the Tomb Remains. You know, as you can tell, this is a fascinating story. We're going to keep going with it. Stay with us. There is so much more to come. This is a grave business, but it's fascinating. I'm Walt Woodward. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date. In your third story in So the Tomb Remained, you describe the state funeral for one of Connecticut's most important governors, Samuel Huntington. Can, can you tell us how this third tomb that you write about received its occupants? Yep. Well, when Samuel Huntington died in the mid-1790s, being a governor of the state of Connecticut, signer of the Declaration, president of the Continental Congress... His resume is an extraordinary resume. During his funeral, there were a few things that went away. Uh, and this was important to us in, in going into the tomb and, 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 and doing our work. Uh, we needed all that background historical information. He, he was buried in Norwich, am I right? Or is it? Yes. The Norwich Town Cemetery, you know, one of the earliest uh, parts of, of, of Norwich. Yeah, and his, and his tomb is the only tomb actually in there. And it's a small tomb. Uh, just basically occupied by 
himself and his wife, Martha, who preceded him in death about uh, a year or two before. But during his funeral, um, one of the things they forgot to do in his coffin was to place a sword uh, in, in his coffin. And that was traditional back then for governors. They were buried with a sword. Uh, they forgot to do that when they prepared the body. So they justified it as to say, well, he never had a sword. He, he borrowed a sword when he needed one and he was a man of peace. So they justified that. They were not allowed to do a 21 gun salute or anything like that because the new governor's wife was expecting uh, and they were with a child and they were afraid that she might get startled and, uh, and miscarry. And, and then finally, when they went into the tomb and they brought the, the coffin into the tomb, they brought it in head first instead of feet first. So the idea is when you go to these tombs and you enter the tombs, and this, this goes for all the tombs we investigated except for the, for the Morgan tomb, the head portion faced the door. So they came in feet first, but when they got in, they realized they brought him in head first. So they had to joggle his coffin 180 degrees. And this is a small tomb with flat field stones coming out of the walls. So there was a little herky-jerky and they finally got him on his, where he was going to rest. So things did not go exactly as, as they had planned. And I imagine that there was a fair amount of banging and clattering when that was going on. Could you move the coffin around without hitting the walls? It would have been very difficult. It depends on how many men were in there. This was a very small tomb. Uh, and to, to, to rotate a coffin that's six feet or at least six feet in length, it would have taken some jostling. Uh, let's put it that way. But, so, so he got kind of tossed around a little. So this is a funeral for one of the most important governors of Connecticut and of the revolutionary period. And in fact, uh, Bill Stanley, who was a Norwich legislator, plumped for years to have him named the first president of the United States. And you can you can definitely make, you know, you can make a, a slightly tortured case for that. <laughs> but, but anyhow, he is, in fact, a very, very important Connecticut figure for from the revolutionary era. And his funeral was a state funeral with uh, with muted drums and lots of soldiers. And then, whoops, oh, no sword, whoops, oh, feet first or head first. A lot of protocol violations. What happened to the tomb that ended up calling for you to come visit? Well, uh, you know, after 200 years, the tomb was starting to really collapse. And there was a structural problem with the body of the tomb that went into the hillside. The facade was pulling away, uh, so much so that there was, I believe, if I remember correctly, at least an eight-inch gap between the body of the tomb and the facade that was starting to lean out. Yeah, I, I've and seen pictures, and it looks like the front of the tomb, that whole wall, is leaning from the top out like it could just fall down and collapse, right? Exactly right. And this is what stimulated Bill Stanley, who you mentioned, who was then president of the Norwich Historical Society, to uh, using the historical society started to raise funds. And at that time they did a, like a $31,000 restoration. So because the facade had pulled away, one of the things they needed was for the remains that were in there to be removed while the restoration was done and to be brought back in. And so that's when Bill contacted me and said, would you come down and give us a hand? And, and that's what we did. I was the first person to go into the tomb 
small doorway compared to Pickett and Buckley. This was like, I'm a, I'm a little guy and I had to crouch down uh, to, to even get through. And I wonder, I said, how did they even get a coffin through here? It, it, it's enough, but you couldn't carry the coffin in like you could at Pickett and, and Buckley. You had to, somebody had to be inside to accept the coffin because it was just yeah. too, too narrow. But anyhow, um, that's when we went in, did our normal procedure, a lot easier than the Buckley tomb because there was only two individuals, but we mapped them. Martha, as you walked into the, the tomb, Martha was on the right-hand side, top shelf, and uh, Samuel was on the left-hand side. The shelves were not continuous. They were basically footstones jetted out from the side wall in two rows. So that means there were gaps between the stones. And so with decomposition, with the coffins rotting, uh, eventually some skeletal remains collapsed through the gaps and were on the floor in some cases. So they were dispersed downward while some remains were still platformed on the high level. Was it more chaotic than you would normally expect in a situation like that? No, it's exactly what we would expect because one of the questions they had is they thought maybe they had been vandalized in the past, but there was no real evidence of that. They collapsed downward. But because they were both on separate sides, on different walls, there was no commingling of bones. It was very easy to distinguish Martha from, from Samuel. Am I right that this is the burial where there's a ribbon? Um... Yes. So because of the, the gap in the, in the tomb, the environmental elements, rain, animals got into this place. And as a result, um, the bones really took a beating so that the, the preservation was not really great. Not like we saw at Pickin and, and, and in Buckley. Uh, but Martha, she was buried with a blouse on. She actually had textiles, a blouse on with a ribbon around her neck. And there was evidence behind her skull of a tissue that would be a pillow. And so her head rested on a pillow in the, on the coffin. However, from the waist down, she was not dressed at all. There was nothing there. She did have a shroud around her, but she was just wore a blouse, and I assume that was for the funeral. And, and you make the, the point in this book that clothing is extremely valuable in this period. Oh, a absolutely. And so people actually, it was very unlikely that people were buried in their clothes. Even 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 rich people, uh, you know, if you will, rich people, you know, higher up or uh, socioeconomic status, you know, uh, it was hand woven and it was work. And you pass those on to brothers and sisters. It, it's not really until you know, textile factories and mills get going in Connecticut and you get into the mid to late 19th century and you've got these gilded age, very rich. They start burying their dead with clothing because they could afford to do so. And they're now machine made as opposed to hand woven. But you go back to the Pickens, the Buckleys and the, uh, uh, and the Huntingtons uh, and they were basically naked. But interestingly, Martha had a blouse on and I think when they lifted the, the lid of the coffin, the, the head portion, to view her during the funeral process, she had a blouse on with a bow, um, you know, to be respectful and to see that. But we found no boots, buckles, or buttons with, with uh, Samuel. Um, he was basically buried with a sheet or a shroud. And without his sword. And without his sword. And that was, that, see, that was important for us because expectations and, and, and this idea that maybe the tomb had been vandalized, 
you know, was the sword taken? Did you know before you went in not to look for a sword or was... Yeah, we had done some historical research. done the homework. Before. Your job here is to reassemble the remains with the individuals. And then did you take them out and they were uh, reinterred? How did that work? What happened? So basically, that's right. Well, our, our job was to hopefully in a respectful and professional way, remove them separately um, and again, the skeletal remains were not in great preservation, so we only got bits and pieces. We didn't have complete skeletons here. Uh, but yes, we worked with, we were working with a, a funeral director in town, Church and Allen, and they, once we moved them, they brought the remains in Ziegler coffins to their uh, funeral home, uh, and they purchased new hexagonal wooden coffins for both Martha and uh, beautiful coffins. And then they were eventually, after our work was done, placed in the coffins, and then they would be reburied with all military honors fitting uh, um, a governor of the state of Connecticut and signer of the Declaration of Independence. So uh, the end result was to bring them back. There was a, you know, Bill Stanley and the, and the Historical Society organized a wonderful um, uh, reception speakers and you know congressional governor they were all there uh, represented and uh, um and you were there too right you had an important job in oh yes in this ceremony yeah, we, so we were uh we were inside the tomb so uh, after all of the the, the uppity ups had their their speeches done um the governor's foot guard and carried the coffins up to uh uh, the tomb, and he actually got the gun salute this There time. you go, right? <laughs> Did he get a sword? No, I, not that I know of. Yeah, no, but the sword was not replaced. But uh, so I, uh, myself, and, and Dave Cook, one of my uh, colleagues, what, we were in the tomb, and we accepted from the foot guard, you know, as it passed through that narrow opening, uh, and then placed Martha and. Um, uh, Samuel in their appropriate places. So when much of uh, the ceremony was going on, I was inside the tomb. As I recall in this story, you were in the tomb to receive the coffin when it came in because it's such a tight space and, and yep. put it down. But then something happened. <laughs> well, the organizers, uh, uh, the historical society, thought it would be really great if uh, congressional uh, diplomats, you know, the, 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 uh, and donors, people that don't, would have an opportunity to actually place the bricks to close it, the, the opening. Anyone, up. anyone who knows Bill Stanley, <laughs> God rest his soul. <laughs> rest his soul. That is so classic, Bill Stanley. Get the people who helped. Let's get them invested in this. So he he has each of them get a brick, and they're going to help seal the tomb again, right? That's exactly right. And so, um, and this really happened very quickly after we had, so we're getting the work done. We got everything in place. And I could hear this noise outside, this kind of chinking, chink, 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 clink. And, you know, I looked at them and said, what, what's that? What's going on out there? And I looked at and they were starting to seal up the tomb. And I started yelling. <laughs> and you're inside. I'm inside. <laughs> it's an Edgar Allan Poe story. <laughs> They forgot we were in there, I guess, and uh, started to proceed. But uh, when they heard me yell, I think they realized it wasn't Samuel. So that, that yeah. we got out. What a story. <laughs> you, you know, 
that's funny. And when you tell it at the end, it's just a funny story. But there's another side to this. And, and I couldn't help but wonder about this as I was reading this book. When you go into a tomb, you are really confronting mortality and its you know, most physical manifestation. And none of us are getting any younger. And I know, <laughs> I know you always treat uh, a site with, with human remains respectfully and uh, sure, thoughtfully. Yeah. But does it make you contemplate your own mortality working in these situations? Not while I'm working the situations. Uh, you know, when you're in there, you've got a job to do. You know, you're, you're called in for whatever reason. And, um, you know, you've got some work to do. And I'm concentrating on doing the work as best as I can. So I'm not really thinking about that kind of stuff. Later on, you go, you know, you, you know, kind of after the effect, you kind of think back on it. But um, no, I, I, it, it doesn't. You know, being an archaeologist, we deal with the past. And we, we totally, and I've dealt with hundreds of human remains, and um, unfortunately, um, and you already know how fleeting this all is, how, how quick it goes, and, you know, uh, it gives you an understanding and appreciation of how privileged we are to be here, and every day is just a blessing. But, you know, when I'm doing the work, I, uh, I've got, a, I, I'm working hard, if, if I will, and I'm, uh, I'm concentrating on what I'm doing and I'm not contemplating anything philosophical at all. I've got, I've got a work, I've got a job to do. That certainly makes sense. And you do that job professionally. Uh, I'm Walt Woodward. We're talking with Nick Bellantoni about his new book. And so the tomb remains. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of burials that involved some uh, really purposeful vandalism. You'll want to know about it. Don't go away. You can find Nick Bellantoni's book, And So the Tomb Remained, exploring archaeology and forensic science within Connecticut's historical family mausolea at your local bookstore or through your favorite online book dealer. Join us March 15th for the second episode of Nick's story when he talks about aiding crime scene investigations at Connecticut tombs and how an archeologist helps police catch those who would steal human remains for use in occult magic rituals. It's a grave undertaking coming March 15th on Grading the Nutmeg.